Alendra. I'm a healer, musician, and the author of the Pandastan Trilogy, now available in audio form on the Pandastan Podcast. If you'd like to support me, please like, subscribe, and share, or send me a donation by following the links in the show notes below. Links to my books, podcasts, my new album, Soul Retrieval, and my online journal, Open Heart, Open Mind, can be found in the show notes as well. Well, today, I'd like to talk about sexuality. And the reason I want to talk about sexuality is because part of my work as a healer, I work as a psychotherapist. And in the course of that work, and in the course of my explorations generally, as a philosopher, as a, a curious observer of the human condition, I've come to find that sexuality is at the core of a very great amount of the trauma and the shame and the control systems, most importantly. That's what I want to focus on here. The control systems that keep us divided against ourselves, that prevent us from flourishing into our fullest potential, our fullest thriving as human beings. I've found that wounds related to sexuality are at the core of a great deal of these phenomena. Now, I think a lot of us are familiar with Sigmund Freud, who was famous for kind of making everything about sex, right? And it's become kind of a joke, right? Anything Freudian, it's just like this kind of weird sex thing. You know, and a lot of his sexual theories had to do with children having sexual desire for their parents. Um, and I heard an interesting critique of of Freud that I don't I don't really know if it's true. I haven't quite looked into it, but it's intriguing. And what was offered as a critique was the theory that Freud, when he started his practice, uh, he was primarily his clients primarily were women, upper middle class women who had suffered sexual abuse in their families uh, as children and also in their marriages. Um, and that he was identifying this as the primary component of their unhappiness, their emotional issues, their trauma, uh, as one would. But that because they came from powerful families, uh, upper middle class and, and sometimes maybe even upper class, it wasn't going to work for him to expose the staggering level of sexual abuse that was occurring in families. And so he modified his theories, shifting 
the, the source of the sexual issues uh, to the child herself or himself. And developed this theory that children naturally long sexually for their parents and that this frustrated sexual desire is, is actually the thing that's at the root of all these traumas and emotional and mental health issues. Well, that's an interesting theory. Um, and the person I heard it from was confident that it was backed up by the evidence, but I haven't studied Freud's life. So I, I don't really know if that's true or not, but it wouldn't surprise me. Because in my work as a psychotherapist, I have found that sexual abuse is much more common than perhaps many of us believe it to be. And the amount of trauma that is incurred from this wrecks havoc, wrecks havoc on the psyche. And, and I think most of us know this. But perhaps the reasons why it wrecks so much havoc are not well understood. And my sense of the reasons why it wrecks so much havoc is because sexuality is core to our nature, core to our sense of ourselves and our pleasure and our affirmation of ourselves and our being. So when the sexuality is violated and confused and turned around through abuse, through these enmeshments, this confusion that comes in, the deep confusion, um, a memory blocking will come in often, right? The psyche has to block out the memories of this in many cases. And, you know, sometimes the memory can be entirely blocked out and it can start to come back in little flashes. And it comes with just trauma rocketing through the body. And it comes with doubt, with self-doubt, because the trauma system, in a sense, collaborates with the trauma itself. This is what I've come to discover, that the trauma system incorporates a narrative around the trauma that says, this wasn't really trauma. You weren't really done wrong. You weren't really abused. Whatever happened to you was right and proper. It was what you deserved. And this activates shame. And I want to come back to shame later. And I want to come back to this whole dynamic later. But before I do that, I want to talk about the ways we've been turned against ourselves, sexually speaking. And this goes right down to the issue of even nudity, right? That our natural bodies 
the way we come into the world is seen to be something to be ashamed of, something to be covered and hidden, something to be very embarrassed about if others see it, something to get angry about if you see it in others. Our very bodies. And the reason that the bodies are to be covered has to do with sexual shame, with the belief that our sexuality is wrong, corrupt, evil, dangerous, perverse. And starting right there with the covering of the bodies, we become divided against ourselves because it's clear to me that in our natural core of ourselves, you might call it our animal self, right? That's just alive, right? That comes into the world and says, here I am, I belong here, I'm a good thing to be entering into the world, and I wanna shine with all my goodness and all my vitality. But when you learn that your body itself is a source of shame, on the deepest level, you're turned against yourself. Because another belief system comes in that says, oh look, I'm wearing headphones. <laughs> I didn't even realize I was wearing headphones. I'm like Joe Rogan. So I'm gonna take these off. Um, and I'm just going to go from here. So as I was saying, we get turned against ourselves. And in so many other ways where we're ashamed of our sexuality, we're turned against ourselves as well. And this comes from programming and conditioning that goes back thousands of years. We see it all across society, all over the world. And I would argue that the reason we see this all over the world is probably twofold. On the one hand, it was recognized that sexuality is a very powerful force. And this powerful force, when unleashed in a chaotic manner, can be very destructive. And people who have not learned compassion, who have not learned boundaries, and for some of those who are, for one reason or another, psychopathic, they can use their sexuality to harm, to dominate. And the amount of damage this does to other people can lead to chaos in the community, chaos in the society. So the leaders of society would have an interest in tamping down this powerful force by putting strict rules around it. 
and enforcing those strict rules with shame. Now the second reason, other than just trying to find a way to control, to harness and, and get a handle on this intense force in human life, those leaders who, in my view of our human leaders, this is just a side note here, I've referenced this before, but I really do believe that leadership over societies, over religions, economics and politics, and war, the people who rise to these positions of that kind of leadership are likely to be psychopathic in nature, um, at least to a certain extent, if not fully psychopathic, at least deeply narcissistic uh, with psychopathic tendencies. And the reason I believe this is just out of the organic flow of power, right? that the ruthlessness and willingness to dominate others uh, does not come easily to people who have a compassionate heart. But for people divorced from empathy, who are deeply engaged in a psychopathic process, It comes naturally. And what better place to direct one's efforts if one is in that condition than in the place where one can, if one is successful, accrue the greatest amount of power possible. And what an advantage to have when one is ruthless a covert psychopath, right? Someone who knows how to be a good actor, to appear like the others on the surface, but internally seeing people as objects, instrumentalities for no other purpose than the furtherance of one's own objectives and desires and, and ultimately power. And such individuals will find out how to climb the social ladder and enter into positions of power economically, politically, and in religious institutions. Now, you know, there are those who would argue with me on this, but that's the lens I'm looking at things through. And we could take a religion like Christianity, for instance. In its origins, springing from the presumed words of Jesus Christ, those that were written, um, presumably by those who knew him or those who were one step removed from those who knew him, 
but the words and the stories and the message that was delivered by this man and the mythology of his godhood and everything else that goes with it. All of that formed the genesis of Christianity. And if you read through uh, the New Testament, well, there's a lot in there. And you see, you see many different faces of Jesus. Uh, sometimes he seems very severe and very radical. Uh, you know, there's passages in there where he's telling people to leave their families, leave everything behind. You know, just like this really radical uh, casting off of the trappings of this world and really stepping into the kingdom of God, identifying with your spiritual risen self, your reborn self, right? This is the self that is, is free from the ego concerns of where am I at? Am I getting what I want? How do I stand in society? Am I accomplishing my goals? All of those kinds of things, right? And this other center of the self is focused in on the spiritual realities of the mystery of being and the recognition that from that vantage point and from the understanding of being possessed of an eternal soul. What goes on in this human life is, is not that important. It just seems important because we're caught up in it. And what's important is love. And when you boil it down, the core message that I found in reading the New Testament, or the Gospels, that is, I haven't read the whole New Testament, is of love. I, I think that at one point Jesus says, there's really two platforms, there's two planks, two, um, you can keep the old commandments, that's fine. But here are the ones that are really important. To love God as you love yourself, or love thy brother as you love yourself, and to love God above all else. It's just about love. But now, 2,000 years later, with Christianity, we find that very deeply embedded into the Christian belief system, you know, it's not universal, not universally true of Christians, but it's become deeply embedded that sexuality is very important, that it's very important for one's sexuality to be um, within certain strictures. Maybe it's getting old fashioned now for there to be a lot of concern about having sex before marriage, but that still exists and in, and in other religious systems too. 
And there's this deep concern about queer people, about having sex in relationships that aren't, that are neither marriage nor meant to become marriage. But it's just the free choice of people who wish to connect sexually. And there's no distinguishing between whether the sexuality is done honoring the sacredness of the act, of the connection, whether love is involved in the connection, or whether it's done simply for pure carnal pleasure. It's all pretty much equally condemned. Sex between a man and a man is condemned. Between a woman and a woman is condemned. And, and lately, you know, there's just this big anti-transgender movement as well. This real deep, deeply held concern that there's something wrong in people engaging with their own sexuality authentically to show up as they actually are internally, to be their authentic selves when it comes to their gender, their sexual expressions. And everything to do with abortion as well, right? Has to do with this question of procreation, about what's right and what's wrong for a mother to choose whether she wishes to give birth or not and bring a life into being. And there's arguments about when to consider a fetus a life, whether to consider this a life, and this attempt to to have this one rule that everybody's supposed to agree with and everybody's supposed to follow. And that if one person is disgusted by homosexuality or by trans people, that it's as if they believe all people should be disgusted by that. And our whole politics is, is revolving around this issue of sexuality in so many ways. It almost seems like the other issues politically about rights and about economy and about government, they come next, they come second after people have decided where they land sexually and and depending on where they land sexually, they tend to align to be the left or to be the right. And when I look at all of this, what I see is a whole society of people and ultimately most of the world in a condition of sexual repression, 
sexual shame, and sexual trauma. I'm seeing people who are divided against themselves. And exporting that shame, exporting their discomfort, the pain of having internalized a belief system that says the energy of my body and my sexuality and my mind is suspect, is shameful, is wrong. Even right down to the mythology of, of Adam and Eve. Eating from the tree of knowledge and then recognizing they were naked and becoming ashamed. And from my point of view, I just don't understand that. Well, they knew they were naked and therefore they're ashamed, as if that was the natural state of things. Once you have knowledge that you're naked, that you couldn't be anything other than ashamed. This was never explained. I've never heard that explained. It's never made sense to me. Why should they be ashamed? Just because they have knowledge. Um, knowledge of what? What did they learn? <laughs> what did they learn that was so bad about being naked? But what I've found is that from a very early age, the conditioning of society, the conditioning that comes through our family systems, and of course it varies from person to person, depending on society and family system you grew up in. But all the way down to this, there is this wound steep human wound and what I'm seeing is I'm, th I'm taking the point of view of, of a controller of society an emperor, a king, a high priest thousands of years ago you're trying to rule over people you're trying to be in a position of having power over them now what's to prevent those people from believing like, why should you have the power? Why shouldn't I have the power? And if people have that mindset, how are you gonna control them? You won't. You won't control them. Um, they're not gonna stand for it. They're not gonna respect your so-called authority. You only have authority because people give it to you. So if you're going to establish that kind of authority system and pass it along through your bloodline, pass it along by deeding your wealth to your heirs or to whoever you choose, you have to create people who don't think that much of themselves. Isn't that what it is, right? Like, 
regular people, generally speaking, don't think that much of themselves. And we're given images of icons, of idols, rock gods and movie stars, right? Movie stars. The stars were thought to be gods thousands of years ago. Up there in the sky, that was the gods moving around, the heavenly orbs. So now the people in movies are stars. People worship them. They literally call them idols. <laughs> right? Um, you know, so much for the spiritual understanding of the folly in worshiping idols. It's encouraged. It's encouraged to view certain people, you know, athletes, politicians, like anybody who's just up there on the screen, who's wielding power, who's got the money, who's got the attention. Our whole society is set up to encourage us to view them as better, superior. Maybe we think they're superior in talent, in intelligence, wherewithal, audacity, however you want to think of it. We're encouraged to think of them as superior, and we're encouraged to think of ourselves as inferior because we didn't achieve that kind of fame and power and wealth. And as inferior people, we're going to accept the rule of the wealthy, of the authorities, of those with high social status. We're going to accept that. Why are we going to accept it? How did we come to not recognize our own power? our own sacredness, our own divinity, the essence of all our potential, the majesty of us as human beings here on this world. If we're only encouraged, you know, and of course we all have varying limitations, but really, you know, I do believe that the potential of the average human being is so far beyond what we're led to believe it is. But we're conditioned to be servants. We're conditioned to submit and to obey and play by the rules that are set for us by someone else. We're conditioned to that. And at the very core of this conditioning is the way our sexuality has been weaponized against us. Because this is the most sensitive, personal aspect of who we are. And that's the erotic principle. This is the eros. It's the 
and the zeal for life. And it comes through in many ways, but on this very primal, basic way, it comes through in our sexuality. And so we're taught to be ashamed of that. We have sex workers, right? Thousands of years, there have been sex workers. And when I look to the, the sacred core of what this work is, this is healing work. That's what it is. Providing healing through sexuality. Now, many people caught up in sex work, you know, particularly people who've been trafficked, you know, and, and abused into it. And that's a big part of this sexual trauma as well, is abusing children, sexually abusing them, sexually abusing adults, uh, sexual coercion, sexual domination, the eradication of boundaries, uh, deep, deep sacrilege, right? Desecration to do these things to people. And the echoes of the damage that incurs from this, they spread out through the whole world, even though not everybody experiences this kind of abuse. And so we're led to believe that prostitution is necessarily sinful, shameful, dirty, you know, people will use the word dirty. People talk about sex all the time. They talk about dirty talk. <laughs> Why is it dirty? Why is it dirty to talk about your sexual desires? It's the shame. It's the conditioning. This is supposed to be dirty. It's filthy. Filthy sexuality. But imagine a society in which sexuality was honored. Not just in the narrow confines of this marriage contract with enforced monogamy. between a man and a woman for the specific goal of procreating, right? And then added to that, we, we've added in love, which is nice, it's nice to add that in, but still, this is so limiting to the fullness of what sexuality is. But imagine a society that actually honored sexuality, that didn't shame people for their bodies, where there was no shame in being naked, there's no shame in sexual desire. And because these topics were not taboo, when sexual violations did occur, the victim of them would never be shamed. And ultimately the perpetrator wouldn't be shamed either because shame is how this wounding of sexuality is perpetuated. But there would need to be consequences, the gravity of the harm that was done 
would be recognized immediately in such a society. And in such a society, the sex workers would be healers and they'd be honored. They'd be deeply, deeply honored for their giving, for their love, right? For the willingness to offer their sexual love, right? Not like the love of like, oh, I'm in love with you. But it would be recognized that the act of sex is an act of love, unless it's being desecrated. So we would have sexual healers and they would be honored as sacred. And I don't know how it really was in ancient times, but I know that in the Bible they rail against the societies that had, as they call them, temple prostitutes, but really sexual healers. This was a, a sacred rite to engage in sex in the temple. Those societies may have been corrupt. They may have not been truly honoring the sexuality. I don't know, but maybe they were. Maybe they were. But the kind of confidence a person can feel when they've not been divorced from their sexuality would bring a zeal for life an unwillingness to have one's boundaries rolled across. A sense of the self that says, I matter. I matter. It's not okay for me to be forced into drudgery work when others aren't. I'm not going to be receptive to messages of shame. I'm not going to limit my horizons of what I might be able to accomplish, what I might be able to create. I'm not going to be ashamed to explore my potential. Think of all the people you know. You might be one of them. Who's ashamed to sing. Who's ashamed to dance. To me, this is such a deep tragedy. That any person in the world should be ashamed to sing or to dance. This is our human birthright. It's the expression of our life and our being. To sing, to let our voices be heard, to make music from our bodies, to move our bodies as dancers, to express the joy of living. It's fundamental to who we are as spiritual human beings. And people are ashamed because they think they're not good enough at it. You've got to be good at singing and good at dancing to be allowed to do it. <laughs> Imagine if people thought you had to be good enough at breathing to be allowed to do it. And only the best breathers 
uh, you know, would be permitted to breathe. Only the, the best eaters. And then somebody would come up with an evaluation system to determine who are the best eaters, who are the best breathers, who are the best, who has the best technique at drinking water. Of course, without those things, people would die, but we got to keep them alive so that they can do the work, so they can be wage slaves or literal slaves. The eros from which singing and dance comes from is the same eros, it's the same erotic energy of one's sexuality. I don't think most people recognize how deeply shame has been ingrained into them. Because it's considered natural. It's considered natural to be embarrassed, to be naked, to be seen naked. There's nothing natural about it. That's my belief. That's my view. There's nothing natural in being ashamed to be naked. There's nothing natural in being ashamed of the unique expression of your body and your sexuality and your eros. It's from conditioning. It's conditioned us to be subservient, to limit our potential, to limit our power so that we're controllable and obedient. And shame what is shame? What is that? I've been thinking more about shame lately and thinking more about how shame is a trauma response. It's the trauma that occurs in the psyche when the psyche is turned against oneself, when a part of the psyche is cut off because it's our natural state to embrace and accept every part of us and to say yes, yes to me. I'm good for having been here. Now I can make mistakes, I can have remorse, and that's good too, it's good to have remorse if you realize you've caused harm. But that's different from shame. Remorse is not the same as shame. Shame is the trauma response when your boundaries have been rolled over through abuse, neglect, enmeshment, through messages of shame that put this shame into your mind, into your body, that tell you this part of you is wrong, this part of you is bad, this part of you needs to be hidden away from the others. That creates a trauma response because the psyche is attacking itself. And then the emotional pain on top of the psyche attacking itself and being in trauma because of it comes in. And so depending on the content of your shame, it could be loneliness, fear, terror, confusion, deep sorrow, 
anger. And in this, most cases with shame, anger gets directed internally. Or it can be directed externally. The shame is so intense. And, and I think really the shame being so intense is what creates narcissists and psychopaths in the first place, right? So that ruling class is populated by people in a state of narcissism and psychopathy has to create more of its own. It has to abuse children to the point where the shame is unbearable and the psyche shuts off the empathy system. You just can't, you, you just shut her down, right? You cannot handle the deep abyss of trauma and pain from having been taught to hate yourself so much. So you shut her off and become a predator. And so the reason I brought this up today is because there is a movement going on all over the world where people are waking up to coordinated global control propagated by lies and deception, coordinated ownership and cross ownership of the big media companies, the tech companies, the finance companies, the military, pharmaceuticals, all of these areas are controlled by the same people. A very small network of people controlling these all over the globe. There's a movement of people who are waking up to this. And as one wakes up to this, one will come to understand that this network of people from their actions, from their words, it's from their own words, from their own books, their own white papers. You can find these things out, what they really think of the rest of us. They don't think of us as the same as them. It's almost as they view us as, as a different species, an inferior species. One that needs to be manipulated, controlled. Um, that it's permissible to do what they will with us because they're the ones who this world is for. They're the ones who are going to shape the future world into what they believe it ought to be. Well, a lot of people are waking up to this and they identify this as evil. And it is evil. A lot of people balk at that. Once you go around and start calling what people are doing evil, then you're going to have, uh, you have to have like a religious war or something, you know, and like 
stomp out the evildoers. And I'd really like to encourage people to separate that out so that we can still identify evil without having to hate and condemn those who have done evil or are doing evil. To not make the same mistake of thinking that they're different than the rest of us. They're just like us. We all have evil within us, the potential for evil. We all have the potential to be predators. Um, it's part of what helps the human being flourish, is to be able, as needed, to become violent, to kill in defense or from the need to eat. But of course, that can also be directed just towards aggression for the sake of dominance and power, and that's evil. But it's within all of us. But if we step outside of this story of shame, where we turn against the parts of ourselves that are forbidden, then we can accept that we have the capacity for evil, which one of us does. We could have been abused and traumatized to the point where we became psychopaths, right? To survive. In order to survive and be able to keep living because that's how deep this trauma goes. And so there is this movement that is becoming aware of the global power structure, how it's operating, the ways that it's created a false perception of how our world works, what it's really like, and what's really important. It censors and covers things up, keeps things secret, keeps the way that power operates secret from us. People are waking up to that and they're identifying the evil. And then here's the thing that I'm seeing people do. They're going to spirituality and that makes sense because there's no such a thing as evil without spirituality. Everything's just instrumental. Well, that's the view of a psychopath, right? That's just a bunch of machines. Human beings are just machines that you poke them and then this happens and there's no moral consequence. It's all relative. It's just relativism. Only when you have a spiritual sense of some kind is it possible for some things to actually be good or be evil. Something has to be right. Something has to be sacred. Something's got to be profane if something's going to be sacred. Unless everything's sacred. If everything's sacred, then what does the word sacred mean? Nothing. It's just another word for everything. <laughs> right? So people are identifying that and part of this is understanding the rampant sexual abuse 
that goes on that children are subjected to and the trafficking that occurs and that occurs in the elite circles waking up to that reality but what I see people doing is then they're going to spirituality so they go to their religion that they're familiar with they go back to their Christianity, their Judaism, their Islam, whatever it is. And there they encounter these shame spells around sexuality. And so I'm seeing this, this uh, kind of like religious sexual conservatism that has started to become like wedded with waking up to the state of the power structures. You know, part of this is also coincidental because it just seems like the left just is totally asleep to this. The left has just been manipulated like a fiddle. How would that happen? Here's how. The power elite recognized that the left had had an awakening around sexuality, um, especially in the 1960s, right? But thereafter also. And the awakening continues and it continues. And people opening up to their authentic gender, their authentic sex, their authentic sexuality people opening up to ethical non-monogamy, people opening up to sex work as sacred work, people opening up to releasing their body shape, being comfortable being naked without it having to be sexual in the sense that leading to sex, right? But it's just your body. All of these things, all of these sexual awakenings are what has come on the left, right? And it's a beautiful thing. I find it a beautiful thing because we're undoing the spell of shame through this work. But in undoing the spell of shame, what we find is that deeply ingrained intergenerational sexual trauma. And as that comes up on the left, and it provokes people on the right who are holding on to the old forms of sexuality that include the shame, that include the prohibitions, they provoke each other, they provoke each other's sexual wounds. And the power elite have taken the position of siding with the left regarding sexuality. Because the power elite, they've been awake to sexuality for thousands of years. They were never part of this. They were never part of the shame game in that way. Now what happens in the power elite is sexual abuse sexual torture, 
sexual domination. Terrible things. These are the things that psychopaths do. But they don't have the shame. They're not ashamed of their sexual desires. Um, they've been carrying along with that stuff for thousands of years all along. Well, this other set of rules was there for the regular people and for propriety, right? As the elite, you couldn't have it be known publicly. But now that's changed. They've decided, okay, we're going to go along with the sexual revolution. And by doing that, what have they done? They've gained the undying gratitude and servitude of the left. The left believes, well, these people must be our friends. They're not their friends. Meanwhile, on the right, the opposite happens. They say like, oh, these people are our enemies and they're promoting sexual liberation. Therefore, sexual liberation is evil. You see how this works, right? That's what I wanted to talk about. As people, if we're going to wake up to this control agenda that's been spinning on overdrive, with all of its lockdowns and mandates, the cyborgism, surveillance, digital currency, all that stuff. If we're going to wake up to that and reclaim our power back, we've got to have a reckoning with our sexuality. And that means loving ourselves. That's what it means to have a healed sexuality, is that you love yourself, all of yourself. And by turning us against our own bodies, against our own sexuality, these institutions of authority, encoded originally through religions, they have kept us from truly loving ourselves. You can't be ashamed of your sexuality and fully love yourself. And it's when you don't fully love yourself that you're able to be controlled and manipulated. Thanks for listening today. I'll have more to talk about next time. Take heart.